You are listening to the Sermon Podcast from the Vandalia Church of Christ in Lubbock, Texas. We are a community that believes in the value of all people. You can find out more about us at www.vandalia.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Vandalia Church. Okay, so we are in Philippians 3 and 4 today. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is one of the most popular passages to tattoo onto your body. Um, In fact, I'm I'm pretty sure John Robinson wears a a blazer every Sunday because he's got that tattooed down his shoulder. Um... Um, it's also one of the most popular passages to put on a motivational poster. You know, those posters that say things like, there's no I in team, or hang in there, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's a shocking number of those last ones. Um, you know, someone lifting weights. Um, one of the most common is, is people hanging off of cliffs, Or jumping off of cliffs, Jesus turns into a a sort of battery extender, an adrenaline injection. Whatever I dream, whatever I desire, whatever I want, Jesus will serve as my good luck charm or my my adrenaline injection. Now the question is, is that what Paul is really saying? What would Paul think if he saw his words plastered over the the muscled, shirtless body of a mountain climber hanging one-handed from a cliff? Or a sweaty bodybuilder pushing furiously on a bench press? Well, I think to get a sense of what Paul is saying, we have to back up a bit and get some context, some momentum from the verses prior to this one. So back in chapter 3... He says, only let us hold fast to what we have attained. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. For many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I've often told you of them, and now I tell you even with tears. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And it's from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humiliation that it may be conformed to the body of his glory by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. I urge Euodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you also, my loyal companion, help these women, for they have struggled beside me in the work of the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice, Rejoice. In the Lord always, 
Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me, but had no opportunity to show it. Not that I am referring to being in need, for I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, what's happening in this passage? Paul is dealing with a group of Christians in the city of Philippi. Philippi is on a major Roman thoroughfare in the middle of the empire. A wide array of women and men from across the ethnic and economic and religious spectrums likely make up this community of Christians. And not too surprisingly, they have divided by partisan interests. He's dealing with opponents from the outside and partisan division on the inside. One conflict in particular seems to be threatening the unity of this church. Euodia and Syntyche, two women who have been close co-workers and leaders with Paul in the past and are a part of this community. And news of their feud has traveled hundreds of miles to reach Paul's ears. From his prison cell and to this conflicted and divided and partisan community, he writes the letter that we call Philippians. And today we come in as he begins to, to bring the various threads he's been weaving through the book together in chapter 3. He's dealing with this mysterious group of opponents. We don't know much about them, but Paul describes them as enemies of the cross. People whose bellies are their gods, whose glory is in their shame. This is worth reflecting on. At the heart of Paul's thinking throughout his writings is this theology of the cross. The cross, he says again and again, is not some appendix on the story. The gospel story leads directly to and through Christ's death on the cross. That part of the story which is embarrassing and irrational to Gentiles and a stumbling block to Jews, as he says in 1 Corinthians is not something that can be swept under the rug. The heart of his proclamation is the new life that comes through Christ crucified. 
So we have to ask ourselves, what would it mean to be a follower of Christ, but an enemy of the cross? To have a Christ without a cross? Well, the temptation, I think, for a lot of us is to think that what this looks like primarily is people who reject Christianity or who might water it down or something or who refuse to say Merry Christmas or something. It's easy to think that the real threats, the real things to fear in our lives are the loss or the denial of what we want to happen. Barriers to our comfort, challenges to or rejections of our beliefs from those who don't share them. But the real threat is more subtle. It's harder to see. What does that look like? Somehow, Paul says, it coincides with making our own bellies our gods. There's a passage from C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters that I've been drawn back to again and again. It's sort of stuck, stuck with me where he essentially says that we have to always be wary of the temptation to self-deception in our battle against our own viciousness. The temptation to make our vices into virtues. As sin takes root in us, as it forms ruts in us, what we have is a set, a pattern, a habit of vicious actions of rage, of vendettas, of arrogance, of violence, bigotry, domination, hunger for power, greed, abuse, prejudice, tribalism. But it's not just a set of choices and actions. It's also a devotion, a, a pulling of our whole selves toward that habit, toward that thing. Or rather towards something we hope to find in that thing. Something we hope to gain from that attitude or that set of actions. And the desire forms to hold on to that inclination. To cling to that pattern of acting and thinking. And from this grows our justification, our inclination to justify our sins. An inclination to rationalize our our vices and corruptions, the things we least want to recognize as being in need of change in ourselves. And if I don't want to see something in myself, especially, I can ignore it and look away, never see it directly. Or an even better strategy, much more effective, is to pretend that it's something other than what it is, to paint it or reframe it as something good, something that doesn't need to be gotten rid of in the first place. I think we do this partly because we like to think of ourselves as good. We never like to think of ourselves as bad or in need of change or wrong. And we do this because we've come to seek some good, some valuable thing, some gain or sustenance from these other things or from these other ways of thinking or acting. These other things that meet our momentary needs that distract us from our real fears and anxieties, give us some kind of pleasure or relief from our real fears. Money and weapons can mask an excessive and sinful inner desire for control 
and an excessive and sinful fear of and desire to avoid any suffering or loss. Rage and violence can mask deep insecurities. Status-seeking can mask our real fear of humility. Tribalism and partisan identity can form security blankets and mask our hatred of others and our fear of being alone. Or our love for a way of life that makes us comfortable, no matter the cost to those around us. Stuff, from cars to homes to clothes to toys to electronics or whatever, can be very useful for hiding from ourselves our real need for something that can't be had from any of it. Real sustenance that lasts forever, that won't break down or dissolve. Real living water. And I think we all recognize deep down that these other things will all end up on the trash heap as failed, empty attempts to find fullness and wholeness, that none of these other things is really worthy of our absolute trust, our attention and worship and devotion. But they're here, they're tangible, they're immediate. They offer us this little burst of control and pleasure and relief. I was just reading, I've read several articles in the last year about how um, the, the likes on Facebook uh, have made us all into likes addicts. It gives us this little burst of, I don't know, some chemical in the brain that makes us crave more and more of this, this, this little burst of approval from the people around us. Uh, and it's gotten so bad that the people who, who designed that part of the software on Facebook have, have come to um, restrict themselves from Facebook because they see the, the, the chemical addiction the, the, in their brains that's forming as a result of these programs that they themselves have created. But these little things, these parts of our lives, they're, they're immediate. They provide this, this little burst of relief or a way of masking our insecurities and fears, our real needs. And so what we end up doing is just adding more and more to the pile of things, hoping that maybe the next thing will work. Maybe the next thing will fill us up. As soon as one thing fails to satisfy, rather than recognizing the overarching truth that I'm looking for fullness in empty things, I keep turning my attention away from the real emptiness of all these things by rationalizing them, painting my vices as virtues, handing over bits and pieces of myself to these things that I think are filling me up, but which are in fact consuming me little by little. And to this, Paul says, for many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is their destruction, their God is the belly, and their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And it is from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the contrast there. Their minds are set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. It's from there that we are expecting a Savior. Notice that the point there is not that heaven is a reward that follows this life, 
but rather heaven as a ground for our identity now. A profound protest and rejection of earthly things as a source of ultimate hope. Their minds, unlike ours, he says, are set on earthly things. Their minds, not ours, are inclined to be convinced that their money or their power or their status or their political party or their nation or their violence will shelter them and sustain them and save them. We, Paul says, are called to something else. We're called to see that facade for what it is, to see through it, to true and lasting hope, to living water. Now, we're not first century Philippian opponents of Paul's gospel of a crucified Christ, but I do think it's very easy for us to be followers of Christ and enemies of the cross. I'll come back to that in a second. I probably shouldn't admit this to you, but um, I'm going to change the subject for a minute. I watched the movie It recently. Um, For those of you who, who don't know, it's about a homicidal clown that lives in the sewers of a small town. Um, I went against my better judgment to see this film because my friend Chad was dying to see it and he begged me to go with him. Um, It was terrifying. I did not sleep well that night. But I do not regret seeing the movie like I thought I would. What I did not expect was for the film to be moving and poignant and to offer profound insights into human nature and human flourishing. What I thought I was going to uh, see was horror for horror's sake, fear for its own sake. And what it ended up being was a study in fear and courage. What sorts of things ought we really to fear? And what sorts of things ought we really to fight? What does real courage look like? How we answer these questions has a profound impact on the sorts of lives that we lead, the sorts of things that we seek, the sorts of communities that we form together. And we often answer these questions very badly. In the movie, one of the most profound surprises is that the real monster is not the clown living in the sewer. As in real life, you have the obvious and conspicuous and tempting object of fear. The clown in the movie is the most obvious and striking figure. However, it turns out that the real monsters, the things the townspeople should really recognize as the real dangers to fear and fight, the real monsters are the self-centeredness and insecurity and love of power that show up in the form of an abusive father and a manipulative mother and a racist and violent and murderous school bully. And it turns out that real courage is not the ability to threaten and destroy anyone and anything that gets in the way of my desires. Real courage isn't even the absence of fear. Real courage is recognizing the real dangers. Real courage is fearing and fighting against the right sorts of things. Real courage is standing in the face of abuse and prejudice and tribalism and hatred and violence. Real courage is the ability to see myself clearly, to see all the ways that I've made my own desires my gods, 
but painted them over with a Bible and a cross. Likewise, it turns out, as Paul, as Paul saw from his prison cell, it turns out that real life, real wholeness, real sustenance, and real hope are found elsewhere than in turning further and further into my own interests and desires. That my citizenship and salvation are bound up with Christ. And therefore, true and lasting joy can move with Christ through difficulty and discomfort. That real wholeness and fullness and strength can be found in the darkest of places. And here, Paul's message in 4.13 begins to become clear. He's not saying, I can fulfill every desire of mine through Christ who strengthens me, Christ my adrenaline booster, God as the servant of my own belly. He's saying that by seeing the emptiness of all these other things, by losing his life in Christ, by seeing that real glory and strength and power are the most clear on the cross, He's saying that he can suffer the loss of all other things. He can endure all things. He can undergo all things, even the most difficult trials of his life, because God is ever faithful. God is present with him in Christ, lifting him, lifting us all into God's own eternal triune life. Let's pray together. God, we praise your name this morning. You are worthy of all glory and honor and praise. We receive this time and each other as gifts from you. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit, bind us together, empower us to live as the body of your son in this world. We pray that you would empower us to find and seek our true hope, our living water in you alone. We pray all things through Christ our Lord. Amen.